Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement, and I am your host, Steve D'Angelo. We have a great show teed up for you today. I guarantee you that you're going to learn something about cannabis that you never knew before, before the end of this podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to say a shout out to some of the organizations that help make this podcast possible. They include Harborside Incorporated, the Liberty Clothing Company, and Homegrown. Please remember to support the organizations that empower our community. The, I'd also uh, like to remind you to continue sending us your questions, um, your comments. They're super helpful in helping us craft this show into something that really works uh, for all of you. And go to stevedangelo.com to subscribe to this podcast. The global worldwide cannabis renaissance that we are all a part of offers many opportunities, offers many rewards. Some of them are monetary. Cannabis is at the beginning of a transformation from the margins of society straight into the heart of the mainstream. And I believe that this transformation is going to make cannabis by dollar volume the most valuable industry on the planet. This transformation is going to offer great financial opportunities for those who get in early, who work hard, who plan well, who are willing to take some risk. Financial success of some form is almost guaranteed, at least a good career. But these financial rewards aren't the most valuable opportunities or rewards that the cannabis renaissance offers us. The most valuable rewards and opportunities it offers us come from the fact that we are still an industry in a process of becoming. We are still mostly a blank slate. The norms, the ethics, the values, the standards of this industry have yet to be set. And, and we can set them if we, if we take this opportunity now. We have the ability to create not just a new industry that looks like every other industry, but to create a new kind of industry, an industry that better reflects the values that cannabis teaches us and that better leads us to the new kind of world that we all dream of. That's an audacious goal, a new kind of world. It's big, it's huge. And yet we have no choice but to take on this task because we know if we don't change, we're going to perish. And the first step in any change is envisioning it, understanding what the change is that we want to make, imagining it. And the second step is coming up with a plan to achieve those goals. Our guest today, Michael Kralitz and Kenzie Rubelezamuli, have spent an extraordinary amount of time and energy doing exactly that, envisioning the new kind of industry, the new kind of world that we want to live in, and giving us a plan to get there. Michael is a longtime activist, uh, cannabis activist with a focus on veterans affairs. He and I have been in the trenches together for at least a couple of decades. He currently serves as the executive director of Veterans for Medical Access. Kenzie is a independent researcher. You know, we are a global show here and Kenzie is uh, just a great example of the globality of cannabis. He is a European of African descent who focuses on cannabis issues. He's an independent researcher and, uh, and uh, a guy I'm just getting to know, but really enjoying that process of, of becoming friends. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Thank you. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So let's let's start with this plan. You guys are the authors of something called the FAAAT report. I call it the FAT report. And uh, could you just tell us, you know, what what is what is FAT and what was your motivation for creating it? All right, so I can I can go for it. So yeah, we, we, we created the, the FAT, it's an NGO think tank. Um, we created it as, a, as an engine, as Michael just said, to, to, to carry on projects at the international level, and in particular with the WHO, this World Health Organization, which is like the, the, the health branch of the United Nations. And they are, we wanted to bring them in the, the cannabis issues to have them assess cannabis, recognize its medicine, recognize it's also a traditional medicine, and um, have them in to, to change the status of, of cannabis internationally. So we created this NGO around this project, and then we developed it around other projects uh, with the United Nations and internationally, and it ended up with this report on sustainable development. Sustainable development is a concept that everybody knows, but not, not everybody fully understands necessarily. We think about it sometimes just in terms of um, sustainable financing or sustainability in terms of um, uh, nature and environment, or, but it's, it's, not, it's not that it's all that at the same time. It's social sustainability, economical sustainability, environmental sustainability. So it's interesting to think of that from the international perspective and with the UN, because they have UN environment, UN on HIV, UN on health, UN on different, uh, different topics. So um, we've been sort of linking cannabis with these different topics beyond just drug control and prohibition environment, human rights, um, any kind of issue, education, gender issues, um, historical justice, um, all of that is uh, sort of already um, codified or covered by the UN in a way. And even more with this sort of agenda, the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda, um, which is a sort of plan to, 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 to reach a I would say to reach a world that is sustainable in all its components, not just sustainable in one or the other of the, of the, of the, of the approaches of sustainability, but which has a sort of holistic sustainability. And the UN came up with that plan, consulting all their agencies, the UN health, the UN education program, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they got together with all countries, with all civil society, researcher, academics, it's been really useful during almost 15 years. And in 2015, they came, they came up with this plan, the Agenda for Sustainability from 2015 to 2030. We have 15 years to make the world more sustainable in all aspects. And so we say, good idea. Uh, we know something that can help with that. And it's a cannabis plant. And it's also the people that are used to do stuff with this cannabis plant, different kinds of stuff. And all that can help um, to reach a more sustainable planet and also in a way, if we don't change our approach to cannabis, our approach to drug policy generally, and our approach to the people involved with, with cannabis, um, we're not going to reach sustainability ever. So you better listen to what we have to say. <laughs> That's a bit the idea. <laughs> so the, the FAT report awesome. uh, is, this, is this really um, comprehensive and very impressive document Michael, could you just walk us through the, the major topics that it addresses? Sure. Um, I kind of wanted to answer the last question. Though. <laughs> Go right ahead. All right, so I'll combine the two. So uh, I just wanted to, I guess, help people understand how this all kind of comes together. You asked you know, how this, how this uh, report came to be. And I think for, for those out there, uh, the thing that really hits me in the heart, the thing that really drives me, uh, you know, we're all working at the grassroots level. There's this old saying, uh, think globally, but act locally, right? Well, we are all local activists. I work right here in Virginia. Uh, Kenzie's very active in Barcelona and in Spain with the, the social clubs. I work here in the United States on federal policy. Um, uh, uh, you'll, you'll hear on Appalachians of Origin and other issues uh, and veterans issues nationally. Uh, but we all... Uh, 
in this group, this fat group, are those that have found the international bodies, that have found our way through, you know, basically Lennis Worth, I think, said it best from Virginia years ago, you know, you go to your local government and you want to change the law, they'll say, well, we can't change the law because you have to go to the state government. You go to the state government trying to change the law and they'll send you off to the federal government. Well, if you get the federal government in court, you'll find out that a lot of their basis is in these treaties. And this is kind of like a filter. We have uh, grassroots activists from countries all over the world. We find our way to the United Nations. And the United Nations itself is kind of like a filter. Because I want you to picture not just the, you know, the geopolitical machine and, and uh, you know, maybe conspiracy theory version of the UN, but the real people version of the UN, where there's a handful of people, usually five to ten people at a given moment, that are representing any given country. And in the, the United Nations program, about 186 countries have signed these treaties on drugs, including our country, USA, and about 53 of those countries make decisions on a year-to-year basis. That's called the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna, Austria. And we've all basically met in that forum in Vienna. And being in that room with a couple of people that are speaking for each country, and it boils down the world to such a very understandable and sort of... uh, palatable, chewable size. <laughs> and and one of the very important things that they've come up with recently is are these sustainability, uh, the sustainability program. And from my perspective, it's kind of like the UN trying to, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to do something really good and finding out that you're actually uh, having a counterproductive result. Uh, it just almost as frustrating as, as doing it and not really having any desirable impact at all over time. Uh, you know, slipping backwards or not having any impact at all. That's basically where the UN has been on drugs forever, but not just drugs, a lot of issues. And I think to try to deal with that, to try to come up with real metrics of success, the United Nations, you know, basically out of, out of, out of New York, came up with uh, this program of uh, sustainable development. It was agreed to completely by the member states and put into action, I think it was in 2015. We've got the, the book here that's the full-size version. Kenzie's working on uh, language versions of kind of a uh, more condensed, uh, you know, edition. But, you know, very quickly, you've got uh, some uh, 17 goals, and within those goals, you've got multiple targets, uh, things that are very straightforward, you know, like uh, uh, protecting the environment. Uh, you know, I'll just open up at random here. Um, quality education, inquiring inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. I mean, these are real things. These are things that will actually impact people's lives in a, in a productive way. And if you can work towards these and actually show progress towards these, then you're actually doing some real good. And, you know, you'll, you'll see as we talk about this that, and as Kennedy already pointed out, Cannabis uh, is very helpful in a lot of these areas, but the flip side of that is if you don't deal with cannabis effectively and undo some of the damage that the war on drugs has done, you're not going anywhere with these sustainable development goals. Great. So um, let me take a crack at answering this question. (laughs) Um, When I (laughs) take a look at at the FAT report, um, what I see is both a plan, a blueprint, and a process. It's a plan because what you do, and, and this, this document is, it's, it's, I don't know, over 100 pages, right? Um, and, uh, and, and it's very comprehensive. And it, for me, it, um, you know, when I've traveled around and people have asked me, you know, Steve, we talk about a sustainable and just cannabis industry, but what does that really mean? What do we really need to do? What kind of companies do we need to build? What kind of policies do we need to enact? What kind of legal reforms do we need to make to make sure that we that we end up at that goal? And um, and I always hand them the fat report because I think that that it is in part a plan. But the interesting thing about the fat report, and I think part of the brilliance with which you guys approach this project is that it is built on an already existing, pre-existing UN plan for sustainable development that was launched in 2015 and runs until 2030. It's known as the 2030 
uh, the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. And, uh, and this plan really um, uh, you know, sets forth the vision of a more just and equitable world. Its number one goal is the elimination of poverty worldwide. And, and so there's also a process um, which the FAT report is now a part of it and is engaging in within the UN. There are opportunities for activists to engage with UN agencies who are in the process of evaluating and hopefully uh, reevaluating and, and changing UN drug control policies. Um, uh, perhaps we could um, move on and talk a little bit about you know, that some of the practical real world implications of the UN's involvement. We know from our experience that um, often once we start making progress in an individual country, that we run into this obstacle that the country has signed a treaty known as the Uniform Convention on Narcotic Drugs, which obligates them to follow the UN policies. And so these policies really uh, impact all of us in every country all around the world. But there's, there's other aspects to UN involvement in drug control and, and drug control policy. Aren't there, could, could, could whichever one of you would like to walk us through uh, some of those other aspects of UN involvement. Well, we, we could say, yeah, we could say in a way it's a two, almost two-faced uh, UN. UN has a, it's very UN drug control program. And as you say, the convention and, and all of that are the, the foundational piece of the prohibition of cannabis and other drugs worldwide. And they are extremely um, harmful for people, for communities and in particular for uh, um, the former colonies. Um, so it's really a, a, a biased part of the United Nations, but there is also a very interesting and constructive and useful part of the UN, which is uh, sometimes even um, physically uh, differ, uh, separated from this UN drug control horrible side. For instance, drug control is in Vienna, Austria, um, the UN at the headquarters in Vienna, where they handle atom, uh, atomic energy, um, oil, um, outer space affairs, crime, and drugs. So it's a bit uh, sort of special ambient, let's say. And then you have Geneva, where they handle health, human rights, uh, also trade, also um, um, fair trade. Uh, they also have standardization and a lot of other other more interesting stuff, uh, let's say, um, in Geneva, but which are still really related to, to cannabis um, and to the people. So um, it's just uh, an issue of navigating properly these, uh, these, these institutions. And in the end, what we've been seeing is that maybe the best way to, to move forward is to, to go to the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, and talk about cannabis over there and go to the WHO, um, the World Health Organization and talk about cannabis, go to the UN Environment Program and talk about cannabis, go to the Secretariat of the Convention on Biological Diversity and talk about cannabis and biopiracy. Bio um, this kind, this kind of, of things are much more useful to move forward at this moment than going to Vienna, the heart of prohibition where they are sort of stuck in a, in a sort of discussion which is not anymore related to the reality of the ground. The realities of the ground are regulation and unstoppable movement towards regulation, and that goes through, well, health, you know, agricultural policies, and um, in the end, sustainable development. So as Michael said, it's also uh, education. And if you want to, to know the, the 17 uh, goals of the sustainable, uh, agenda, the sustainable development agenda of the United Nations, out of the 17 goals that they are, they are setting, uh, cannabis is linked directly to 15 of them. So it's, as you said, poverty is the first one, uh, hunger and reducing ending uh, hunger, uh, health, which is not only health from the perspective of medicine, but also health uh, in terms of harm reduction and prevention and you know, uh, responsible use of cannabis, of adult use cannabis. Uh, it's also included in the sustainable development agenda, goal three on health. The goal four is on education. Uh, goal five is on, on women and gender equality. Um, 
goal seven is on uh, energy, access to affordable, uh, modern, reliable energy. So in that, hemp definitely has a role to play, but also the way we cultivate cannabis. Uh, are you going to cultivate indoor, greenhouse, outdoors? That also impacts uh, the overall energy consumption. I, I, I was listening to your, your conversation with uh, with uh, David Bronner the other day, he was mentioning Sun, Sun and Earth certification, and that's uh, definitely uh, something that is needed to achieve uh, goal seven of the sustainable development agenda, the goal seven on, on access to uh, energy for all, reliable, modern, uh, clean energy. I'm gonna to recommend to, uh, to our audience that they, that they access the report, the links will be up on the screen. Um, and uh, it's, it's really comprehensive. I encourage everybody to, uh, to take a look at it and familiarize yourself with all of these points. But it seems to me that what you guys have really done, what you're in the process of doing, is opening up a beachhead for cannabis reform inside the UN and are building that beachhead in Geneva and um, and uh, preparing, I think, ultimately, right to to engage with Vienna and 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 hopefully take on the the convention. Is that is that one of the ultimate goals? Well put, well put. <laughs> so I, I think to give you a quick practical answer uh, to your last question, um, the United States has obligations under the treaty um, that are tied into our Controlled Substances Act. So there's a lot of countries like that where their federal law is written in a way that enforces or in some way enables the uh, international treaty. Uh, then there's some countries that the treaty is actually their law. I think there's some parts of the treaty that would actually immediately change uh, European Union policy, for example, or maybe Japan's drug policy, for example, uh, should there be a change in the treaty. So that's you know one thing. But then there's something that maybe even is more transparent, more invisible to, to your audience, and that is the day-to-day -day relationship that we as uh, countries have with this international drug control program. Every time that you use any kind of controlled medicine, there's forms that are filled out and there uh, are logs that are tracking that and it's tracked through the International Narcotics Control Board of the uh, United Nations Drug Control Program. So all the controlled drugs on earth basically are uh, you know, dispensed in a hopefully a systematic and, and, and a, a, a fair way. And, and I think, you know, in some ways we owe a debt of gratitude to the tr drug control treaties for making sure that, you know, you do have access to drugs and that is something that's not used as a weapon of war from one country against each other denying access to, you know, life-saving treatments, for example, uh, as a weapon of war. And the reason, one of the, I think, big reasons you don't see that is because of these drug control treaties that were signed into. So, um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, the, you're talking about uh, the, what you just said, I mean, is so beautiful. <laughs> the beachhead in Geneva and uh, going back to Vienna is exactly how Kenzie and I would put it. Uh, it's a very advanced way of understanding what we're doing. And I think that it's not us. Uh, you know, the, the entire world is kind of where the United States was years ago. It's realizing that throwing more money into putting people in jail is not helping them reduce problematic drug use or prevent young kids from getting involved in dangerous drugs or lowering their overdose rates or any of those things. All those markers are going the wrong way. And that's part of the sustainability goals, you know, to try to figure out how to get those markers to go in the right way. And I think that we uh, with cannabis have a lot to offer in that regard. And I think that they're going to find it organically. What our hopes are is that the World Health Organization recommendations, which are fair and based on evidence, you can look at them as sort of corrections of the treaty to make sure the treaty is actually based on evidence. It would still be prohibition, but it would be prohibition based on evidence, not based on Anslinger's wild claims. And uh, you, you can <laughs> explain who Anslinger was. But, uh, yeah, I think that, and it is, the treaty is based on still to this day Anslinger's wild claims. So the treaty has to be rewritten. But that's going to happen after the World Health Organization recommendations are settled, and it's not ex immediately clear how that is going to unfold. My hope is that the, the process of, the, of this book and the process of our thinking as a cannabis movement and a cannabis industry and a cannabis people and a cannabis tribe uh, coming together to help this process will help create 
some better ways to look at these things, uh, and it will organically result in a, a change of treaty. Kenzie has come up with some eloquent, eloquent ways where they could really uh, redefine how we look at drugs and redefine how we look at industrial use and just make a couple of small changes to the treaty and accommodate our needs. But we need to be able to regulate non-medical and non-scientific access to drugs, which includes spiritual use, you know, a lot of things that we hold dear. So, you know, you've talked about these things endlessly, and I totally commend you on just about every uh, number that you've thrown out. I've been watching, you know, what you've uh, been producing, and I agree with you. You, you say things from the heart, and uh, you're saying a lot of the same things that I would say. So thank you. We're all one, all one tribe, right? All one tribe. Um, so, you know, one of the things that really impressed me about the work that, that you did was how wide-ranging it is, how you touched on things that, most people don't typically include in a conversation about what a cannabis industry is going to look like. And I'm thinking about things like decent work and, uh, and equitable gender relations. Could, could you talk a little bit in, in those categories, Kenzie, maybe, and, and talk a little bit about the ways that, that the cannabis industry um, right now maybe doesn't have uh, decent work conditions and, and, and what the report envisions to do to improve that. Yeah, well, it's uh, the first thing is that working in, in uh, illegal conditions <clears throat> is not decent work. <laughs> it's not possible to have a decent work in a, a non-regulated condition because you, you, you hardly have access to you know, health uh, coverage and, and security and so on and so forth. So uh, you're still kept at the margin of a lot of, of, of society by not having a legally regulated job. So this is the first uh, uh, threat and risk over, over the people that work in the industry. If you have an accident at work, you're not going to be, to be covered in any way, you know what I mean? So it's, it's uh, inherently insecure to work you know, in an underground market um, or in an informal market. So working in a legal setting is the first necessary step. And then uh, not, not all legal, uh, legal settings are uh, good working conditions either in the agricultural sector, the legal one for other crops, you know, palm trees for oil or, or bananas or whatever, um, you have uh, extremely horrible working conditions and that's definitely uh, something we need to avoid in the cannabis industry, um, um, transitioning from uh, non-regulated, from prohibition uh, cannabis market to legally regulated cannabis market, which are exactly similar to the to the horrors of of you know globalized um, agricultural uh, trade, is certainly not the way to go. So we have to think about a different way uh, to. To, to, to think about labor and to think about the people that are in, involved uh, with this plant in one way or the other, be it farmers, be it the people that process it, the people that transport it, that sell it, um, or that do other kinds of stuff, that taste it, that whatever, that test it. Uh, we need to think for these people of, uh, because we have the opportunity to build a new industry from the onset. So instead of just copying what exists and what we know is harmful, or not, not necessarily working in particular in developing countries, we need to think about what would be the ideal uh, working condition for these people and what would be the, the, the way, the, met, the method to, to reach this condition. So obviously we're not necessarily going to reach this ideal condition, but you have to at some point put it on the table and then have this as a goal to, to reach uh, good working condition. For instance, if you talk about the farmers, having proper con working condition for farmers uh, implies maybe having a, a cooperative structure. So you're not alone, you get together, you have more strength in, in the market. You have also a way to, to have solidarity at the local level, a way to, 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 to get, uh, to improve working condition by making investment uh, together. You have also other elements like Again, for developing countries, for countries where, where it's traditional, having the kind of protection like um, geographical indication or appellations of origin or 
protections that denote of the terroir, of the quality of, of cannabis that has been traditionally grown, or the quality of the way people process it, or even just of the, the quality of the culture associated with cannabis, even though it's not, you know, it's not being grown there for thousands of years, it can have uh, all uh, cultural specific elements that make it different, that make it better, and that will um, denote something from for, for the farmers that, that grow it. I was born in France, so in France we have a lot of cheeses, wine, a lot of, you know, uh, this kind of, of products, and we are known all over the world for that. And these uh, products are made by small farmers. We have appellations of origin in, in France also to protect, to, uh, to empower the small farmers, to protect their traditions, and that's why we have products that um, are produced by, you know, little amount of people, but they are doing it in proper working condition. They are they have um, ownership over the over their their processes, over the way to do it. Collective ownership. They can develop. They can also assist um, other groups of farmers in other in other areas. So that's what we are thinking for. For instance, for farmers, that's a way to enable proper working condition for farmers. Uh, certainly not just being. Uh, working in a, in a huge mono mono monocrop of cannabis in some developing country held by some foreign company, so you know what I mean. So it's 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 in a way also interlinked because we are talking about appellations of of origin and geographical indication also in the goal about the environment and the protection of the ecosystem uh, because it helps protect. Uh, the traditional genetics of cannabis that are existing all over the world and that are under threat of you know, the arrival of CBD crops all over, pollinizing everything and um, putting at risk not only the traditional crops, but also the, the, the traditional farmers that go with it and their possibility to then create um, a, a way to exist in the legal market that will have them have proper working condition, proper human rights, ownership over their land, you know, and gender equality. Uh, also is linked to that because women in particular in the agricultural sector are often often a, a particular target of of the of the repression but also um, by not by, by not by not regulating they are even though uh, heavily involved in the task uh, both at home and in the farm they are often the last uh, in the in the channel to 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 benefit from from whatever protection can exist so legally regulating is a way to <clears throat> is a way to enforce gender equality in the agricultural sector as well all this material is really great again i encourage people to to drill down in the report one of the things um that i really liked in, in what you just mentioned kenzie is you've identified a couple of tools that could be used by the people who are listening to this broadcast this podcast uh, all over the world. And one of the things we want to do on Radio Free Cannabis is put tools into the hands of people all around the world who are trying to build this new kind of industry. And I just want to highlight a couple of the things that you mentioned. One of them is cooperatives. Uh, right now, there's a huge amount of excitement in the world of cannabis about the growth of corporations, about the opening of the public markets, about uh, the globalization of the cannabis trade. Um, and uh, I think that there's a role for corporate cannabis, but there's another part of the cannabis world, uh, which uh, has been very robust at different places at different times. And that's the cooperative world of cannabis uh, in California for mm, the better part of 15 years. In order to be in the cannabis business, you had to be a nonprofit cooperative. And the businesses and the conditions in those businesses that were built were very different from what we're seeing in the world of corporate cannabis. So uh, I would encourage our audience members to think about cooperative structures that give power and control to the people who are actually working in the business so that they can ensure the working conditions that they're working in are decent. Um, the other tool, which is a really interesting tool that I wanted to highlight is appellations. Uh, appellations are something um, that you may know best from a wine that comes from France, France like uh, Burgundy or Champagne, which has to be grown in a specific region according to specific techniques and it has to reflect the terroir 
the air, the soil, the sun, the natural environment in which it's grown. Well, now there's a movement, uh, it's happening in California, to create appellations for cannabis so that we would have an Emerald Triangle appellation or a Mendocino appellation or a Humboldt appellation. And what's critical here is that the only growers who would be able to gain those appellations are growers who are working in natural environment. No greenhouses, no grow rooms, no electrical lamps. The only way you get an Appalachian designation is by actually growing in the sun and the soil and the wind and the air. And so this serves as a market designator. It's a way of increasing the value and the market presence of small cannabis farmers, not just in California, but all around the world. And so again, uh, to our audience members who are thinking about the tools that they can use in their countries in order to secure a spot for small independent cannabis growers, uh, think very carefully about Appalachians and the role that they could play in, in that effort. I'd like to make a little comment on that, if you don't mind, Steve. Um, uh, Appalachians, uh, you know, as we were working on the World Health Organization uh, process uh, in Geneva, uh, we presented a document, a paper that was titled uh, The Importance of Cannabis Appalachians of Origin in Finding the Best Therapeutic Model of Cannabis uh, Natural Plant Applications in Medicine. And it, it's really neat. You know, we we've been caught in this sort of conundrum. We've got this sort of uh, 900 drawer Chinese apothecary model with the brilliant person behind the counter that can assess you in a minute and put you together with a grower and a plant and a whole history that they know is in one of those little drawers. And it's hard to take that and put that out in the pharmacy for my veterans, you know, in the VA hospitals and the rest of the patients out there in the real world that don't have access to that really incredible experience that you and I, uh, you know, share and know. Um, and I think that with the Appalachians of origin, you at least have some of those elements. You have to be reproducible. You have to show that there's something very unique about this placement, this geographical place that it exists and the, and the, the practices and the, the, the way that it's grown, the, the cultivation, uh, uh, you know, methods and all that has to be very appealing to the consumer. The consumer has to see a very distinct difference, and that has to be reproducible. And you take those couple of things together, and I think you've got the first element of what we need to bridge that gap so that you can start having at least one thing, a product that you can have uh, you know, reproducible and, and therefore be able to have a, a sustainable product that you can put through a research project. But also you have... Uh, something that's actual real world. You know, we've been talking to Dr. Sisley about her study, and she says it failed because the cannabis they were getting from the U.S. government wasn't the real world cannabis that you're getting in these fine dispensaries with all those choices. So somehow we need to bridge that gap, and I think Appalachians of Origin, uh, once fully fulfilled, will give us this incredible quality selection. Just think, in your you know, a fine dispensary there in Oakland, you can have Jamaican gold next to Acapulco gold, next to Panama red, next to the finest Humboldt green, and then we'll see you know, what, what patients like the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're beginning to verge into a conversation about a whole plant medicine, Michael. <laughs> Getting there. <laughs> Getting there. Um, that's another show and, and another time. You could consider the SDGs because all of these goals and all these targets is sort of a world policy medicine for the planet. Maybe we can sort of put it like that. I look forward to exploring that with you just very briefly for the benefit of our audience. There are two approaches to therapeutic cannabis. One is the traditional pharmaceutical approach, which basically would take this very complex cannabis plant and break it down into monomolecules, CBD, THC, that would just be pure isolates. Um, and uh, the, that's the traditional pharma approach. The other approach is the whole plant medicine approach. And the idea there is that the most effective cannabis medicine is uh, medicines in a whole plant format. So you take full advantage of the range of cannabinoids and terpenes that are present in any given strain of cannabis. And rather than using pharmaceutical methods to break cannabis down into its isolates, which to me is kind of like taking a fine piece of precious Ming Dynasty porcelain and smashing it against a brick wall, 
Um, the other route of development is smart breeding to develop strains of cannabis that have the desired cannabinoid and terpene profile that's proven most effective for the conditions that they're intended for. So we will uh, have a show on that one day. I think it's a really important part of making sure that cannabis medicine reaches all of the people who, who need it. Um, Kenzie, let's talk a little bit about, um, about how the activists uh, who are in countries all over the world listening now can uh, most effectively use the, the FAT report? Well, first, I would say read it. <laughs> it's already, because it's 140 pages, it's already uh, so, uh, it's some piece, some time. But uh, I, I've been working, as Michael said before, I've been working on making this uh, short summary version which is uh, at the same time uh, shorter and the summary, but also much more uh, oriented to, towards action and with uh, concrete uh, recommendations and more concrete points, more clearly exposed. So it's the same thing, but clearly more as a tool for um, activists or advocates to, to, to take action. So also, which what, what's interesting with the SDGs is that it's sort of, breaking up the vision we were having. At the beginning, you were talking about a new kind of world we, we are entering in. And that's totally true. And we need a new kind of vision of, of cannabis and cannabis policies generally. We are thinking maybe too much binary, you know, kind of marijuana and hemp or, you know, medical and adult use, this kind of, this kind of stuff. Maybe, it's, maybe we need to, to think a bit more complex. Maybe it's not that easy. And in that way, having this 17 goals framework it's a really complex framework. It's more than two, right? It's 17, but it's really useful to break down in you know pieces of the problem because it's a huge problem, um, especially talking about cannabis with policymakers, with doctors, with people that don't really know about it or that know wrong things about it uh, sometimes. So having this thing broken up and, and put it into different pieces it's maybe easier to, to, to explain to people, to discuss to, with people and to convince people because it's not only broken into a different uh, approach uh, into these different goals, but it's also directly related to the, pre the preoccupation of people, directly related to specific topics. So it's maybe more uh, evident for people to engage if you just take goal four on health and you go speak with, to a doctor with it because you have the whole health approach, not only just medical, but also harm reduction, but also these different kinds of medicine approach, as you, as you were just mentioning. Maybe it's easier to engage with him. You sort of acknowledge the you know, the potential hazard that, you know, um, um, problematic use of, of cannabis ca can generate, but also that we know the solution to mitigate it, to avoid it, to prevent it, to reduce the harms of, of it. You can talk about him, uh, talk with him about that. And at the same time, talk about him, uh, talk with him about the, the medical, the medical side of thing, which is something really useful. Maybe, maybe not in the US where you have a different, uh, already a different, uh, evolution and maybe the doctors are more trained in the U.S. than anywhere else because of the history of the U.S. and medical cannabis. But elsewhere in the world, it's really useful to have this, this maybe this big problematic broken down, small pieces, small thematics that you can go reach uh, specific stakeholders and discuss more easily with them. So that's the way to use it. And the small report of the summary version that is going to, to go out, we have launched, we have just launched a crowdfunding. So I guess we'll circulate the link in the description or, or, or something. We just write, uh, launched this crowdfunding to, to edit the different uh, version of the summary in various languages. So it's going to be in English, in French, in Czech, in uh, Spanish. And if everybody supports the crowdfunding, I guess we're going to make other languages, hopefully. I'm I'm really really glad to hear that that you're that you're moving forward with with more languages, Michael. Do you have any suggestions along this line? How can activists in their in their own countries most effectively use this resource that you've created? Well, it, I, I guess it can be used in two different directions. So, in one direction, use it internally to help kind of guide your steps to try to make your own, uh, you know, business or your, your own uh, entities or, or uh, activities with hemp cultivation and, and, uh, and just, you know, 
uh, areas of your life that you you work on uh you know environmental issues uh etc that uh, you can actually benefit yourself from from just reading this report and understanding some of the knowledge base and and being more conscious and more uh effective in your own life you know in in being a good steward of of our world uh, but but also i think the the you know, best thing about this is that it uh, allows everyone, you know, the, the person that has no connection to any organizations that's sort of out there and in a very remote place to those who are living in the biggest cities with the biggest populations and, you know, plethora of different organizations to work through uh, can, can take this and connect in to this process already ongoing. It's just kicking off this year. 2020 is the first year of this 10-year United Nations program. And there, if you go on the website of the United Nations, you'll find an entire website dedicated to the sustainability goals. And it breaks out by country, and you can get language, you know, documentation and, you know, pretty uh, posters and things to print out. Make you, you know, back in the day when we did info tables, heck, you could create an info table in about five minutes based on this stuff. But also, you can plug into a process. You can talk to your local legislators. You can talk to your your, your parents and your teachers and your and your friends. And you you can connect in to this United Nations program literally anywhere around the globe. And I think that was the most exciting part of it for our UN leadership was to create a program like that where the very top level people are going to agree on this and get it going. And it connects everyone on earth into this one goal to try to make a better future for ourselves. Yeah, I'll I'll take a crack at that question too. <laughs> I think all everything that you you've both said is 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 valuable. I have a few other specific suggestions. So I think about my friends in Mexico and in Jamaica. Um, probably it's happening now in Lebanon too, where they've just passed some kind of legislation. Countries that are in the beginning stages of figuring out how they're going to license and regulate cannabis. Uh, there's a real opportunity to engage in those conversations with a level of credibility um, that might not otherwise be there when you walk in with the FAAAT-UN report that's consistent with the agenda. Keep in mind, every member nation of the United Nations has signed on to the UN Sustainability Development Agenda. So you can go to your own legislators to uh, anywhere um, in the world and say, like, you guys have already agreed on these basic goals. Let me share this report with you, which will tell you how legalizing cannabis and regulating it properly will help you achieve these goals that you've already said that you want to be a part of. I think about industry association. So much of what the industry is going to look like is going to flow from the industry itself, from the leaders of the industry, from investors in the industry, from powerful companies in the industry. And so I think that um, using the FAT report as a way of building consciousness of the need for a new kind of industry within organizations, uh, industry organizations, is also something that's going to be uh, really, really valuable. Um, and then I also suggest that those of you who are working in cannabis companies now, that this could be a valuable conversation starter uh, when you're looking at your own internal practices within the company. Uh, we know that um, the best way to make change is to, is to be the change that we want to see. And I think that, again, this is a very well thought through, beautifully designed uh, document that has a high level of credibility. So I would encourage all of you to use it as a tool to engage in these various different forums. So um, we talked okay. a little bit, Kenzie, about, uh, you mentioned the, the GoFundMe campaign. Um, I think that the work that, that, that you have done is of tremendous value to the entire cannabis community worldwide. And um, Last time I checked in, I, I was under the impression that the, that the work had stalled due to a lack of funding. And so I'd like to, to, to give you an opportunity now to um, let our audience know how we can help support you and make sure that this, that this valuable work keeps moving forward. Well, um, or 
already I wanted to say thanks for, for adding to, to me about the fact that the SDG books is a tool not only for public policy, but also for private policy, for companies, for standardization, good practices within the, within the, the, the people themselves. And that's, of course, one of the main uh, things that I'm working on. And yes, I, I'm working on that, and Michael is, is working on that also. We, we are just working without the, the FAT organization right now. So sort of independent or relying um, with the help of different organizations, de depending on the opportunity on the moment, but in the end independent. So I, I to, just to, to survive, I have, for instance, a Patreon uh, where people can uh, become patron and give a couple of you know, uh, bucks per month. So that just helped me uh, basically pay my rent and continue to do research. I have to read a lot of books, sometimes buy books. Sometimes I have to move to consult archives at the UN and stuff like that. It's, it takes, time and effort and money and it takes support so uh, either the patreon or this crowdfunding which is really focused on getting uh, the translation of the the summary version of the of the report and then um, i'd say uh, keep uh, posted because we even though fat per se is uh, in standby because we don't have resources to have it fully working uh, and we don't have the resources to get more resource, getting resources require resources again. So it's sort of uh, at some point we need to uh, uh, kick off again with a, um, probably a, something new or a new vision. Probably I, I let Michael speak about that because he's our, uh, <laughs> our sage. <laughs> well, I, I could say that um, we've been working with a fiscal sponsor uh, to finish our work in the United Nations supporting the World Health Organization recommendations, which are up for a vote at the United Nations. The World Health Organization recommendations are sent down the hall to the World Health uh, United Nations for a vote in December. And uh, the organization we're working with is uh, DRCNet, the Drug Reform Coordination Network, and they're acting as our fiscal sponsor to finish that project. So they've got an account set up, and you can donate money. They're 501c3, uh, and, and it's uh, you know able to give you tax deductions and everything for donating. Uh, just uh, earmark it, and just you know tell them that you heard uh, uh, you know hear that they were accepting money as our fiscal sponsor. Tell them that's what you're donating the money for, and then they'll, uh, they'll appropriately deposit it. And um, that will help us finish this work. We've got a lot of meetings to finish. I think we have six meetings before December where we're going to be talking about cannabis. Completely, completely unprecedented. This is like literally hundreds of times, hundreds of times more uh, discussion and, and uh, evidentiary examination and, and uh, testimony and questions than they've given to any other drug that they've put into control or, or worked on at the UN. Okay. Well, it, 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 it's heating up in the UN. We are building this beachhead. And I think that the, our champions in that struggle is fat. So if you care about what happens at the United Nations level, if you believe in a global cannabis industry, if you believe in the global cannabis freedom movement, I'd say that this is uh, a project that's really important to, to support. And especially if there's any executives of cannabis companies who aspire to a international footprint, to a global presence, I think that this would be a really uh, excellent way of uh, running your flag up the pole. Another one of the things that I like to do here at Radio Free Cannabis is highlight the personal journeys of activists who have made impact in the world. There are many, many young people who are listening to us all around the world who are looking to cannabis, to the cannabis movement, to the cannabis industry, and has some purpose to it. So, you know, Kenzie, could you just talk to us a little bit about what your personal journey was? How did you uh, end up doing this work that you're doing today? What was the beginning of that journey? Well, um, to be honest, actually, I started really with, with social justice. I started, even though I was a lover of the cannabis plants and so on and so forth, I, at some point I decided that, that, that society was fucked up and needed really to, to change. And I, I, while I was thinking how to change it or how to help change it, I realized um, drug policies uh, generally, but of course, cannabis <laughs> occupies a big, a big percentage of drugs, uh, drug policy, and the drugs issue. I realized drug policy is uh, tentacular. It has uh, ties in every part of society, and it's uh, interacting with with everything around me. <laughs> and uh, uh, um, 
I say maybe changing drug policies is a good way to change a lot of things in society. I was in France. In France, it's a lot of uh, people from the former colonies, in particular Northern Africa, but also um, Indochina, Vietnam, and, and Thailand, and so on. These kind of people are often involved in the illicit um, business of cannabis in France. Just kind of like Black and Latino people in the USA, they are also um, obviously more represented in jail and in arrests and in you know uh, harassment by the police, and they are. Uh, cascade of consequences uh, socially, um, sort of, uh, even the former pre prime minister recognized there is some kind of apartheid in France. The prime minister, while he, while he was in office, recognized it, and it's true, and that apartheid is heavily fueled by, by the prohibition of cannabis and drugs generally, and it goes uh, into so, so many, so many uh, ramifications. I say changing drug policy is definitely the top one priority to make a better society. And then I realized changing drug policy, you got to change cannabis policy. <laughs> it's the main issue. And it's also particular for me, particularly um, important because I'm, I'm a user, uh, consumer, and um, I'm not sure how to define my own, my own use. Uh, but uh, anyway, but I didn't really got involved for my own use, my own use. I got involved when I realized that it was everywhere around me. Even when the drugs are not there, their absence is sort of significant of something. So um, really what got me into that is, is uh, uh, social justice. And that's why I'm really uh, interested in, in human rights. And I'm interested in the project you, you, you've been leading, like uh, Last Prisoner Project, because it's totally what, what, what I'm working on. Uh, I'm a big fan of the UN for that, because they do human rights standards internationally. Uh, some of them are, are binding, some, some others are not, are just recommendations, but all of them are excellent and are really guidelines for, for us. And I think maybe the, the best human rights that applies to almost everything in, in cannabis is almost like the concept of sustainable development. It sort of covers everything. It's the right to, right to remedy and reparation for the people that have been victim of violation of their human rights. So if I got my human rights violated, once it's recognized, I have the right to remedy, reparation, restitution, compensation, uh, satisfaction, guarantees of non-repetition, and all that is uh, uh, what we need to seek for, for cannabis. So that's, that's me. All right. Well, um, we are going to just closing down to the last little bit of the podcast here. Uh, Michael might pop back in, but we may need to save Michael's story for another time. But I'd like to thank him and Kenzie for this incredible work that, that they have done. Um, Michael, did we get you back? No. Okay. So we're going to be rolling out here now. Um, I think that this has been a valuable conversation. We have just really begun to dug, dig into the FAT report, though. And so if any of this interests you, I encourage you to dig into it yourself. I'll be honest, it took me quite a while to get all the way through it. But now that I have, it's, it's like, this, like this rock or like this anchor or like this platform that I've got that I can build on top of. It's always going to be there. It's going to be valuable. So I encourage you all to put the time into it. Remember, we don't have a choice anymore. We need to change or we are surely going to perish us as a species for sure. And perhaps we'll take the whole planet down with us. We know that we need to move in a new direction. And many of us have been touched by the cannabis plant, have had our hearts and our spirits and our souls opened to beginning to imagine what that new world might look like, the new values that we want to live by. And that's really the first step to making any change. Imagination, envisioning. And once we've got that under our belts, then we need to plan, we need to move forward, we need to take action. So we have this report in our hands now. It's up to us to take it, to craft it, to use it, to use it as a tool to make change, to make change in our countries, to make change in our companies, to make change in our industry associations, and ultimately to make change at the United Nations and get rid of the Uniform Convention 
on narcotic drugs, which obligates countries all around the world to keep cannabis illegal. And remember, no matter where you are, no matter what conditions you're in, even if you've been arrested or you're getting ready to go to court, even if you're in prison right now, remember, if you love cannabis, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. Collectively, we are larger than all but the largest nations. And we are coming. Change is coming. We will not stop and we will not rest until our last prisoner is free, until everybody who needs this plant, no matter where they are on the planet, has it. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.